Hey, true crime fans. You can join many of your favorite true crime podcasts in one place at the True Crime Podcast Festival. In addition to meeting and mingling with true crime podcasters, you can also experience exciting panel discussions and live episodes. Plus, you can make new friends with others who appreciate your love of the genre. The 2020 True Crime Podcast Festival will be held July 11th and 12th in Kansas City, Missouri. Tickets are on sale right now. For more information, to buy tickets, or learn more about the festival, visit truecrimepodcastfestival.com. That's the True Crime Podcast Festival, July 11th through the 12th, 2020, in Kansas City. I can't wait to see you there. Also, True Crime Fan Club is now on Himalaya Plus. I really enjoy this platform, and it's a little bit like Patreon, except that it's a little bit more flexible in how you can support the show. I will include a link to the Himalaya Plus website so you can check out the show and find out how you can support it. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. An awkward love triangle with an odd man out, a husband kills his estranged wife, and the estranged wife of another man, just to cause pain and suffering. He spies, stalks, and uses technology to track the affair. Okay, on to the show. In the early morning hours of February 12, 2007, Chris Little walked into his house at 95 Larkin Avenue in Markham, Ontario, Canada. It was approximately 3.30 in the morning when he placed a 911 call, stating a woman he didn't know was hanging in his garage. He took the time to cut her down before going into the house to find his kids. Upon entering the master bedroom, he found his estranged wife, Julie Crocker, in their bed with her throat slashed from the left ear to the right collarbone. Little exclaimed, Julie, 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 she's bleeding, she's bleeding. He asked the operator how to do CPR. She told Little to place Julie on the floor and then transferred Little to an ambulance attendant who walked him through how to perform compressions. At some point during the conversation, Little mentioned to the operator that it appeared to be a murder-suicide. The female in the garage was Paula Menendez, the estranged wife of Rick Ralph, a Toronto sportscaster for The Fan 590, who was having an affair with Julie Crocker. Investigators found a crumpled photo of Ralph and Crocker at the foot of the bed. Menendez was found with her feet bound together and yellow rope around her neck. There were pieces of rope still attached to the rafters. When police arrived, Constable Stephanie Hunter checked on Little's two daughters, who were still asleep in their room, unharmed. Little had apparently not gone into their rooms to check on them since he had returned. Hunter noted that Little had blood on his hands and had noted smears of blood on the walls coming up the stairs. Initially, police believed they were investigating a murder-suicide but some things seemed out of place, and they soon realized they were looking at a homicide scene that was staged to look like a murder-suicide. For instance, on the 911 call, 
Little, while still in the garage, before he had even gone into the house, stated there was blood all over the house. He could not have known that unless he had already been in the house. Also, there was blood on Menendez that had been transferred from Crocker by Little. Little had neatly taken his shoes off at the back door before going into the house, which is strange for someone who was so worried about his two young daughters, Madison, four, and Mackenzie, three. And it was later revealed about an hour before Little had stumbled over the bodies. He had been washing his car and getting fuel at a station approximately five miles or eight kilometers from his Markham home. He was also wearing different clothing than what was seen on the surveillance cameras. In the video footage, he can be seen wearing gloves. A pair of black gloves was found near Menendez's body in the garage. By the end of the day, Chris Little was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. A charge of first-degree murder indicates that the killings were premeditated. Chris Little and Julie Crocker had been married for 10 years. They met in high school where Chris played rugby and football. Julie was a sales executive for a radio station owned by Rogers Communications. She reportedly made $275,000 annually, which was approximately $200,000 more than Chris made as a sales representative in fiber optics. Julie was described as tall, stunning, and brunette. Chris and Julie also worked on the annual Markham Fair, a tradition that had started with Chris's father, Barry, who had been president of the board of the Markham Fair. Chris's family lived on a dairy farm that had been in the family for almost 200 years. Barry Little bred prize-winning cattle as well. Most of their friends were unaware that Chris and Julie had separated. The summer before the murders, neighbors recalled seeing the couple with their daughters, walking their dog, a chocolate lab, or taking the girls for ice cream. People said they looked like a happy couple. Even Chris's cousin, Darren, did not know they were separated and living apart. Other friends knew about the split, but said it was a friendly one. Chris took his girls to the Toronto Zoo to end the year in 2006, pulling a wagon behind him. Rogers Radio issued a statement about the slaying of Julie Crocker. Executive Vice President Sandy Sanderson said, We are saddened today by the sudden loss of Julie Crocker, an exemplary and respected account manager in the CHFI sales department. Rick Ralph and Paula Menendez married in July 2003, and just a few months later, he cheated on her for the first time with a female co-worker from the radio station. This affair was an on-again, off-again relationship for three years. He admitted to having another affair with a woman from the community college where he taught classes on broadcast journalism. Ralph kept his affairs from his wife until 2005. By that time, the marriage was in serious trouble. The couple tried to fix the marriage by taking a romantic trip to Cuba in May 2005. One night, after too many drinks, they had unprotected sex. In June 2005, Ralph came home to find Paula on their front porch, very upset. She was pregnant. He had a confession of his own, that he was having an affair. The pair went to counseling to see if the marriage could be repaired. After a few weeks, they decided the marriage was probably not going to work, and Paula decided to have an abortion. 
16 months later, they officially separated. Paula was 34 when she was murdered. She wanted a family and a practice of her own. She was a physiotherapist. She had an identical twin sister who was scheduled to deliver a son by C-section on February 12th. The split between Paula and Ralph was amicable, and the two flipped a coin over property division in the house. Ralph was excited for Paula when she had taken a trip with a friend a few months prior to her death. She had met a man there and had a brief fling. Ralph told her, quote, way to go. However, in a diary entry read in court, which was dated after their split but before the girls' trip, Paula had written of her heartbreak. She felt that she was being treated as a sister or a friend and wrote, quote, I don't know how I got here. I am now by myself in a house that is filled with Rick. All I did was love Rick, and now I am alone. She also wrote in her journal, I love him. I ache for him, and there is nothing I can do. I feel very alone, sad, and angry. That is so much harder for me, and that he has no feelings. Another entry read, When he talks to me, it is so hard. He looks at me like a sister or a friend. I have had such a small impact on his life that he can just walk away. I'm hurting so much I can't figure out how to move on. Paula tried online dating, using the dating service Lava Life, but according to a customer service representative for the company, she only received one response. Another entry shared with the court said, I have a strong urge to get together with just anyone. One last entry that Chris's attorney wanted to share said, Here I was happy and married, and now I sit alone in a movie theater trying to pass the time. I go to bed early just to put an end to the day. I'm always hoping that Rick will show up or call. These entries were shared with the court by Chris's attorney, John Rosen, in an attempt to show that she was potentially unstable and could have committed murder and then suicide. Rosen, who had represented Paul Bernardo, infamous serial killer, said that Paula Menendez had probably internalized all of her depression. Paula met other men, but one of these went back to his ex. Sean Cohen was a man she dated right before she died. She had been with him just a few days before she was found in Julie's home, and he said she was relaxed and happy. Rosen posited that Paula had gone to the house in Markham to confront Julie Crocker about her relationship with Rick Ralph, and then killed Crocker and committed suicide. Initially, it appeared the only connection between the two couples was Rick Ralph and his love affair with both women. Julie Crocker and Rick Ralph had met on a work cruise in the late summer of 2006, then played golf at work a couple of times. And in September 2006, Julie and Chris showed up at a Toronto bar, where a party was being held by one of Ralph's friends. Ralph went up to the couple to introduce them around, eventually introducing them to his wife, Paula Menendez. They all began talking, and Paula, Julie, and Chris realized they had grown up in relatively the same area of Markham. Ralph was the only one who was not from the Markham area, so he did not participate in the conversation and just stood listening. This was the only time the two women had met, although a few months later, someone left a message on Paula's phone to let her know that Ralph was having an affair with Julie Crocker. 
Paula told Ralph to be careful, since there were children involved. The affair with Julie began around the same time that each couple separated. Part of Chris and Julie's agreement during their separation was that Julie would not bring men over to the house for overnight sleepovers. However, according to Chris, when testifying, she broke this promise and had men stay overnight in her room with her children down the hall. In one instance, Chris came into the house, walked into his former bedroom, and discovered Rick Ralph in bed with his estranged wife and began shaking his foot. Another time, Ralph had gotten a hotel room for the night, close to the radio station, because he was out with friends and would be out late. Julie showed up in the room, and before long, there was a knock on the door. According to Ralph, this was early in the relationship with Julie, and they had not yet been intimate, but Chris insisted they open the door and talk through this like adults. Julie said they should, but Ralph refused. Finally, Julie opened the door and left with Chris. Ralph decided not to stay in the room that night because he was too shaken by the whole incident. The next morning, Julie informed Ralph that Chris had installed a GPS tracking device on her car, and that was how he had found her the night before. By February, Julie and Ralph were staying together with regular frequency in the apartment she and Chris shared for their odd childcare arrangement. Additionally, Chris had cameras in the ceiling and recorded sex with Julie, allegedly after he had drugged her. He also had ordered chemicals and tested Julie's clothes for semen and then sent samples to a lab for DNA testing to compare the DNA to his. Chris had a voice-activated recorder in Julie's car, too, to pick up phone conversations or conversations with her friends in the vehicle. Chris had tried several things to save his marriage. He had brought her flowers and books and wanted to renew their vows. However, Julie wanted out. By all accounts, it appears she was smitten with Ralph and wanted to pursue that relationship. Julie's mother, Judy Crocker, said that Julie had allowed the marriage to last as long as it did because she did not want to hurt Chris. She was trying to make things easy for him. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. I am still on my native deodorant kick. The lavender and rose scent has not done me wrong in this Texas heat, where temps are regularly over 100 degrees. To me, that means it works. The switch to a natural deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice on odor and wetness protection. Native comes in a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women, plus they release new, limited-edition seasonal scents throughout the year. They also offer an unscented formula and baking soda-free formula for those with sensitivities. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TCFC during checkout. Again, for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code TCFC during checkout. Being blind as a bat means that I have to regularly update my glasses and prescriptions every year. I love the concept of Warby Parker. The Warby Parker aesthetic is vintage inspired with a contemporary twist. Every pair is a custom fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. If you're considering trying out Warby Parker, 
don't hesitate. If you need help, take the quiz. You just answer a few quick questions and they'll suggest some great looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. They also have a free home try-on program. You order five pairs of glasses and then you try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. In fact, I'm on my second order of five because I just can't make up my mind. They ship for free and include a prepaid return shipping label, which is awesome. Blue light filtering lenses are also now available. If you have an iPhone X, make sure you download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on eyeglasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style just using your phone. Head to warbyparker.com TCFC to order your free home try-on. Take the quiz to find a pair that's perfect for you today. Once again, go to warbyparker.com TCFC to order your free home try-on and take the quiz to find a pair that's perfect for you today. On the night of the murders, as Chris stood beside Julie's body, an officer asked him who he was. Chris replied that he was the husband of the woman on the floor. The officers asked him what he was doing there and how he had gotten in, and Chris replied that he had a business trip and stopped by to get some clothes and that he had a key. He said that he had hit the woman in the garage with his car and had no idea who she was. However, when investigators searched his computer, they found online directions to Paula's house. The online map had a red star over Paula's house. When Paula did not show up to work the day before her body was found, a co-worker, Dinah Hampson, went to her house. The front door was unlocked, the car was in the driveway, and her purse and cell phone were in the house. Police are not sure how Paula got from her home to the house on Larkin Avenue but they believe Chris kidnapped her. She left the home between 8 p.m. Sunday and 3.30 a.m. on Monday, and the police believe she left in a hurry. When her body was found in the home, police said they were not sure who she was until her friends reported her missing after she did not show up for work. When she was found, she had no socks on and no underwear. Law enforcement made appeals to the public for any information they had, particularly anyone who saw Chris Little's GMC envoy around the properties or anything else suspicious. Police had three separate forensics teams working through the three separate houses. Julie's home she shared with Chris, Paula's house, and the Graydon Hall apartment in Toronto, where Chris and Julie split their time. To try and maintain a sense of normalcy in their daughter's lives, Chris and Julie rotated through the house and Chris's apartment. A pathologist stated Paula's injury was consistent with ligature strangulation, not hanging. She had severe bruising on her thighs, as if she had been dragged. Paula was also hogtied at one point, based on the marks on her wrists and ankles. It was later discovered that Chris Little had won a calf roping contest at the Markham Fair one time. Paula's twin, Carolina Stubbs, testified for the prosecution. Carolina had given birth to a son, Aiden, on the same day that Paula was murdered. She was the last known person to talk to Paula, who had told her she was going to take a bath and go to bed, and then wait to hear from Carolina the next day, after the birth of the baby. No one ever heard from Paula again. Rick Ralph had expected Julie Crocker to pick him up from the airport. 
it had been a stressful weekend. He had flown to Nova Scotia for his father's funeral. When she wasn't there, he was worried something was wrong, and then he was notified of her death. When he saw his BMW and that someone had scratched the word suffer in the roof, he realized the murders were definitely personal. Through it all, Chris attempted to play the grieving husband. On scene, he acted upset, even hyperventilating. As the initial hearing began, Chris burst into tears and buried his head in his hands. A short while later, he regained his composure and showed little to no emotion for the remainder of the initial hearing. And then, throughout his two-month-long trial, as he answered questions and provided testimony, Chris's voice was flat with no affect. Even as the sentencing was being read, Chris showed no emotion. It was a trial that left the woman's lives bare to the community, so that it seemed the victims themselves were the ones on trial. Chris testified that Julie had cheated on him numerous times, even stating that she showered every other day unless she was going to meet a lover. He painted a portrait of a harlot while testifying in front of the family who loved her and continued to grieve for her. His attorney's goal was to call Julie's morals into question so that along with Paula's state of mind, perhaps a jury would take pity on the balding man who had lost his wife he loved so much. Loved so much, he obsessed over her enough to track her every movement. The families of Julie and Paula were hurt and angry that these accusations and character assassinations were allowed to go on. Thankfully, the jury saw through these attempts and found Chris Little guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. He was automatically sentenced to life without parole for a minimum of 25 years. Chris also received a firearms ban and was ordered to provide a DNA sample. Before ever leaving the courtroom, Rosen said that they would be filing appeals. However, the judge presiding over the case stated Rosen had done everything he could possibly do for Chris Little. While being sentenced, the judge who presided over the case, Justice Michelle First, herself a former criminal attorney, had scathing words for Chris Little. Quote, she was facing her future with grace and courage. You saw to it that the pain you inflicted increased a thousandfold when you sought out and publicly labeled her a homicidal, suicidal maniac day after day in this court. Let there be no mistake. Paula Menendez was your victim. She continued on with barely contained rage, talking about Chris Little's cowardly and vicious crimes and deserving of the most severe punishment our law permits. She wrapped up her statement with, you slashed the throat of the woman you professed to love so severely that she was almost decapitated. It's difficult to imagine a greater callousness than robbing children of their mother's love. Paula Menendez was truly an innocent player in a production cast and staged by you and you alone. You may sit down now, Mr. Little. Chris was found guilty on a very appropriate day, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. At the time of this court case, which was in 2007, one in five homicides in Canada was domestic in nature. The International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women is a worldwide movement to try to end gender-based violence 
where all women and girls can feel safe and free. There were several victim impact statements read after the verdict. Impact statements are often helpful when inmates are up for parole. This helps parole boards actually put into context what the crime meant to living and breathing people. One of the excerpts included powerful words from Paula's sister, Claudia Johnson. Quote, Despite Chris's and Mr. Rosen's deplorable efforts in spinning stories and attempts at obscuring the truth with lies, the jury was able to see past it, use their common sense, and help bring some closure to our families. It was extremely difficult to hear these past few months what was essentially a very public character assassination on Paula. Those that knew Paula, those whose lives were touched by Paula in any way, knew that what was being said and implied could not be further from the truth. Paula's family had moved from Argentina 30 years prior in order to offer their children a safer place to grow up and live. Her father, Jaime Menendez, spoke about this in his impact statement. Please do not misunderstand me. I still have the same original feeling when I compare it to other countries. But what an irony and disappointment when our beloved Paula would end up paying for her life for a decision I made more than three decades ago. Judy Crocker delivered a victim impact statement outside the courtroom. It read in part, On February 12, 2007, Julie Crocker was silenced. She can no longer speak for herself. As Julie's mother, I appreciate the opportunity to say a few words, and I am honored to speak for my daughter. I do this for her in the hope that she will be remembered as the person she truly was. During the trial, the individual permitted to say the most about Julie was a man who committed this horrific act of violence. Much of what he said about Julie and her feelings was simply untrue. Julie was a loving mother, daughter, and sister. She had a successful career as an account executive with CHFI, and she loved her job. She was not perfect, but few of us are. And she made some wrong decisions in her life, just like the rest of us. However, she was a wonderful young woman who was kind, generous, and thoughtful. In fact, it was her kindness and concern for her husband, her efforts to make things easier for him, which led to the prolongation of a marriage that had essentially been over for a very long time. Julie was bright, confident, and fun-loving. She found the good in everyone. If you were her friend, she would do anything for you. If you were her sister, she loved you unconditionally, and she defended you only as a big sister could. When her father was ill and ultimately dying, Julie turned her life upside down to be with him and to be supportive of me. As a mother... Julie was protective and devoted to her children. They adored her, and she loved them fiercely. On February 10, 2007, about 24 hours before she was murdered, she and her two daughters had a sleepover, as described by her four-year-old. We stayed in bed with Mummy. She made us popcorn, and we drank hot chocolate and watched a funny movie, and it was fun. Mummy let us stay up late. This was the Julie we knew and loved. In 2012, Judy Crocker was shopping for groceries when she was notified that Little had been moved from a maximum security facility to a medium security prison. The news was like a slap in the face for Judy. In 2014, Chris Little argued for his right to a new trial, 
based on the violation of his charter rights, which is a part of the Canadian Constitution. He claimed that the authorities violated his charter rights when they searched his cell phone and workplace for proof that he had plotted the murders of his estranged wife, Julie Crocker, and Paula Menendez. Judy Crocker, Julie's mother, was present for his hearing. She was satisfied that his appeal had been denied and remains behind bars to this day. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This show was produced by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Follow him on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or check out his website, WeTalkOfDreams.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editor was Brittany Martinez, and I'm your host, Lainey.